For those of us who love horror movies, we find an enjoyment from watching people run and fight for their lives. Seeing others experience fear can give us a rush of adrenaline from the safety and comfort of a theater or our homes. One of the main reasons we find so much enjoyment in horror movies is the element of fiction that makes us feel okay since we know that what we are witnessing isn't real. But what about those movies based on real people and real events? Do we get the same kind of enjoyment from horror movies when the atrocities replicated on the big screen are inspired by true pain and real terror? Some of the classic horror movies you love may have a shockingly real inspiration. What's up, Iwu crew? Today we're talking about the case of a serial killer, a horrifying tale of a son's delinquent obsession, a mother's belligerent rule, a delusional psychosis, and unspeakable crimes. It will make you question everything you think you know about the limits of depravity and change the way you see modern cinema forever. This is the story of one of the most influential serial killers, though you may not have heard of him. If you enjoy true crime, mysteries, and true stories, be sure to hit the like button and subscribe. Now, let's get to it. It was a chill day on November 16, 1957. The crisp bite of winter air had wrapped itself around the town of Plainfield, Wisconsin, the first few bits of snow blanketing the earth in white. It was a peaceful place by all accounts, and residents of the small town lived relatively scandal-free lives. But strange events were afoot that day, events that would lead to the uncovering of unspeakable horrors. And though no one knew it, the gruesome scene police would discover that day would haunt the town and the world forever. It was noon, and the citizens of Plainfield were growing concerned. Warden's hardware was always open at this time of day, yet when patrons attempted to enter the store, they found themselves shut out in the cold. The door was locked, and there was no sign of anyone within from the windows. This was truly odd, as Bernice Warden, the owner of the shop, would never have her doors locked unless something was wrong. With growing apprehension, those waiting beyond the door eventually called Bernice's son, who happened to be the town's deputy sheriff. Frank Warden made his way to the hardware store, unsure of what he would find. His mother was a creature of habit and always made sure to open the store diligently every day. It was especially unusual for her to be absent in the middle of the day and without a word to anyone at all. The moment he entered the shop, Frank knew something was very wrong. The store was quiet and devoid of life. In fact, it looked as though no one had been there at all that day. Frank made his way toward the counter and noticed that there were bills littered over the floor. The till was missing, the metal drawer forced open, and bits of coins and bills spilled randomly around the store. Frank would have labeled it a robbery had he not found something even more disturbing. Behind the counter, he found a large pool of blood and spatters and streaks leaving a horrific trail out the back door of the store. It disappeared shortly thereafter, but the deputy's panic at his missing mother was stayed 
as he was certain he knew who was responsible for the obvious foul play. Deputy Sheriff Frank Warden and his colleagues made their way to the old Gine farmhouse. The secluded home was surrounded by farmland and woods. Warden knocked on the door, but there was no response. He tried the handle, but the door was locked. The deputy decided to try the woodshed attached to the house. What he discovered inside would haunt him for the rest of his life. The officers found the woodshed in upheaval, with great mounds of garbage piled high and heaps of boxes all around them, all of it a monument to a life of squalor. As they moved through the shed, searching for anything that might be of significance, one officer happened to bump into something hanging from above him. Drawing his flashlight over the ceiling, he uncovered a grisly sight. Bernice Warden's lifeless body hung from the rafters, strung up by her feet. After being fatally shot, she had been decapitated. Her head was nowhere to be found, and her body had been gutted as though she was cattle, left to bleed out as she hung. The horrific sight of Bernice was only the beginning. As the officers made their way deeper inside Gein's reputed house of horrors, they uncovered one of the most shocking crime scenes discovered to this day. Edward Gein, born in 1906, and his older brother Henry grew up the sons of Augusta and George Gein. Their father, George, was an alcoholic, rarely seen without a bottle in hand. He was a timid man, one completely at the mercy of his overbearingly religious wife. In the Gein household, Augusta ruled with a fanatical brutality. Her verbal abuse was almost a ritual routinely mocking and shaming her sons and husband. As a devout woman, Augusta used religion as a way to separate the family from the rest of the town. In fact, Ed rarely left the abusive family farm, departing only to attend school service. Even when her sons were young, Augusta repeatedly told the boys that women were evil and preached about sin, carnal desires, and lust. In Augusta's eyes, Women would lead her sons down an unholy path, and she made it her mission to stop that from happening at all costs. Despite her domineering personality and religious views, Ed idolized his mother, and the devotion he had for her became increasingly alarming to his brother Henry. Though they had grown up in the same household, Henry held very different views of their mother. Henry worriedly watched how his brother avoided all contact with women, never attended social outings, and remained by his mother's side at all times. For Henry, who had fallen in love with a divorcee with two small children, it was unthinkable that Ed should devote his entire life to their mother. He wanted what was best for his brother, and in his mind that meant running away from the family home, just as he intended to eventually. It was this difference of opinion that would force a wedge in their relationship and would later cast doubt on what was once believed to be a tragic accident. After struggling some time with his alcoholism, George Gine ultimately suffered a fatal heart attack in 1940 at the age of 66. To survive, 
Ed and Henry began to pick up more handiwork around the town and on the farm. On one fateful day in 1944, Ed and Henry found themselves out in the field, burning overgrown brush. The fire soon grew out of control, and Ed ran to the nearest authorities, screaming that his brother had been lost somewhere deep inside the blaze. When the flames died down, law enforcement asked Ed if he knew where Henry was. Though he stated he was unclear as to his brother's whereabouts, he was able to lead them almost directly to his brother's body. They found Henry lying face down in the ash and mud. On the back of his head were the marks of significant bruising, as though he had been struck there with a blunt instrument. Yet when coroners examined Henry's body, they would deem his death a result of smoke inhalation. The incident was labeled an accident, and Ed Gein was never questioned about the circumstances surrounding his brother's death. For Augusta, whose family was dying off one by one, the loss of her son caused immense heartache. For Ed Gein, though, he finally had his mother all to himself. He no longer needed to explain away his possessive obsessions or his undying and unhealthy love for his mother. Life was exactly as he wanted it to be, and for Gein, he couldn't have been happier. But shortly thereafter, tragedy struck once more. Augusta suffered a stroke, one that left her paralyzed and helpless. Gein tended her every need, becoming her full-time caregiver, feeding her, clothing her, and bathing her. He was at her side day and night, leaving only to work nearby at the Central State Hospital, where he performed odd jobs as a mason, carpenter's assistant, and medical center aid in order to support maintaining his mother's needs. For nearly a year, Gein cared for his mother, more deeply and devoutly than anyone else could have. Sadly, it wasn't enough, and in 1945, Augusta succumbed to her illness. Without his mother, Gein's one and only true love, he was left lost, alone, and heartbroken. His mother's death would prove his undoing. And in the years that followed, Ed would become increasingly unhinged. At 39, Gein turned his obsessive needs toward anatomy. In wake of his mother's death, he developed an intense fascination with the human body and began to collect anatomy books by the dozens. He scoured the pages, absorbing as much information as he could. He went as far as books would take him, but his newfound interest was piqued and would not subside easily. The compulsive drive led him to believe he needed a real human body, something he could explore with, get his hands on, and this obsession led him down a dark and gruesome path. One early morning, shortly after Gein had risen and dressed for work, he found himself sitting at the kitchen table, reading the newspaper. He scanned through the paper until at last he found the obituaries. We'll never truly know what made Gein bridge the gap from fantasy to real life, but somewhere within those hallowed obituaries, Gein saw the answer to his sick craving. He needed a body to touch, to explore, to understand intimately, and the newspaper had told him how to get one. What followed was a new fixation, an unseemly preoccupation with the dead. Gein would comb through the newspaper day after day, 
waiting to see who was newly passed and when the funeral would be. Then, as quickly as he could manage in the dark of night, he would steal away to the fresh burial ground and would dig up the deceased. He would then take the bodies home with him, a sick form of companionship that seemed to fill the void his mother had left behind. Once alone together in the privacy of his own home, Gein would engage in dismemberment, evisceration. But as Ed explored the darker side of his own psychological needs, he grew less and less satisfied with the deceased company he kept. The bodies he had taken had taught him so much about anatomy, about life and death, but deeper desires were now stirring within him. He was no longer satisfied with robbing graves. He wanted something fresh, something new and exciting. The sun was just beginning to set on the evening of December 8, 1954. Long shadows began to grow as the last bits of orange light died over the horizon, and a local man in Plainville, Wisconsin, made his way over to the Pine Grove Tavern owned by Mary Hogan. He was on his way to buy some ice cream for his daughter, but the purchase would never happen. As he entered the bar, he instantly realized that something was very wrong. Chairs had been tipped over, laying across the floor as though there had been a scuffle. Just beyond were bits of cash from the opened register, and a large pool of blood covered the wooden floor. Terrified, he turned and ran, eager to get as far away from Mary's wrecked bar as he could. Mary Hogan would later be reported missing, and though the police searched for suspects and leads, they turned up very little. Day after day, the locals of Plainfield would gather at the tavern, trading bits of gossip and hearsay about Mary's whereabouts. Ed Gein was often among them having frequented the establishment with regularity over the past few months. When asked if he had any idea where Mary was, Ed would jovially tell them she was stashed away at his place, a joke the locals found humorous at first. Ed was mild-mannered, if a little odd, but the locals that had grown up with him saw him as a harmless, hard-working man from a rough upbringing. He had proven his worth to the town over and over again, putting his best foot forward, always giving more than he got in return. He was a trusted handyman and babysitter, caring for the local children and fixing the homes of everyone in town. It was inconceivable that the quiet, still shy Gein could really have Mary Hogan at his home, never mind boast about it to them. But there were those who were not convinced that he was only a little strange. In fact, Many women of the town would comment that Ed sent their skin crawling. There was a look in his eyes, they would say, a look that unnerved them. For the next three years, Mary Hogan's disappearance went unsolved, until one fateful night on November 16, 1957, when the world learned who Ed Gein truly was. As police and law enforcement officers entered Gein's home that night, what they found would shock and amaze the world for years following. In the kitchen, which stood adjacent to the woodshed where Bernice was found, officers struggled to move across the floor because of the piles of garbage that littered the floors. Pieces of furniture and trash was littered over every inch of the home. It was a disheveled wasteland 
and hidden beneath were true horrors no one had ever dreamed of. As officers took a closer look through the refuse, they uncovered shockingly disturbing things. Among them, soup bowls that had been made of human skulls, jars filled with human organs, and a significant collection of body parts. As upsetting as these were for officers to find, they were far from the most depraved items in the home. As officers began to understand some of the horrors that had taken place in the Gein household, they investigated even deeper into Ed's belongings. Faces of women lay hung across the walls like artwork. Chairs and lampshades were made of human skin and adorned the room as furniture. Gein even went so far as to make masks out of the stolen corpses. Then, in an even more horrifying discovery, in a paper bag found in one of the rooms, an officer pulled out what he assumed to be a wig, but was really Mary Hogan's face. Gein had also fashioned himself clothing out of the skin of the corpses he'd stolen, a pair of leggings made from the legs of his victims, and what would later come to be known as a mammary vest. Gein spent his evenings creating clothing and furniture after skinning, dismembering, and preserving pieces of his victims. And as he donned his suit of skin, he would wear it and pretend he was a woman. As the horrified officers continued on through the house, they found a room that had been boarded up. Tearing down the slats that barred them, officers made their way into the room of Augusta Gein. It had been perfectly preserved, with the bed made, a Bible sitting on the bedstand as it so often did when she was alive, and the floor dusty but otherwise spotless. It was the last piece Gein had of her, and he kept it just as it had been when she was alive as a shrine to his obsession with her. Police immediately arrested Gein, taking him down to the station, and for hours, Ed refused to speak. Then, after some time had passed, Ed made a simple request. He wanted a slice of apple pie with cheddar cheese on top. Once receiving it, he would tell investigators everything. Gein confessed to the murders of Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden and admitted to grave robbing. In all, he confirmed to mutilating nine separate corpses, along with his two murder victims. Yet, despite his admission, he would later plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Court proceedings took place to determine if Gein was mentally fit to stand trial. In a cruel twist of fate, Gein was declared mentally incompetent and was sentenced to spend his days inside Central State Hospital, the same institution where he had worked only a few years earlier. After months of psychiatric analysis and treatment, Gein was determined to have schizophrenia. He said that he often heard voices speaking to him, and this was the presumed basis for his psychotic break with reality. In 1958, Gein's estate was set to be auctioned off but on the morning of March 20th of that year, the town of Plainfield awoke to find the farmhouse ablaze. The house completely burned to rubble, leaving little more than a smoldering pile of ash and ember. Despite this turn of events, the auction for the rest of the estate would continue to take place, but the home and all of Gein's personal effects were destroyed. Upon hearing that his home had burned to the ground, Gein was reported to have remarked, that it was, quote, just as well. 
A decade later, in 1968, after years of psychiatric treatment at Central State Hospital, a hearing was once again held to determine if Gine was competent to stand trial for the horrific crimes he had committed. A judge declared that Edward Gine was indeed fit to stand trial this time around. For financial reasons, the state chose to prosecute Gine for the murder of Bernice Warden only, though her death alone would be enough to send him away for the remainder of his days. He was found guilty of first-degree murder, and he was remanded to the custody of Central State Hospital, where he would remain until 1984, when Gine's health would begin to fail. Shortly before the end of his life, later that year, Gine would be transferred to Mendota Mental Health Institute, where he stayed until at 77 years old, he died of complications from cancer. He was buried next to his mother. While Gine's life may have been over, his legacy was not. Authors and movie makers alike took inspiration from his haunting, sickening story. Some of the most depraved villains in horror movies were created based on Gine's crimes. Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre was loosely based on Gine's obsession with masks made out of human skin. Gine's unhealthy obsession with his deceased mother influenced Robert Bloch's 1959 novel Psycho about Norman Bates and later the movie of the same name. As well, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs was inspired by Gine's mammary vest he sewed from human skin. Less notorious movie villains have taken their inspiration from Gine, including Three on a Meat Hook, Deranged, Ed and His Dead Mother, and Child of God. The horrors Ed Gine committed would earn him the moniker The Butcher of Plainfield, a title that haunts the small town to this day.